don't do cheap swag. <laughs> like we need to stop doing this as event planners. We have a say. I'm serious because we get a lot of stuff from China and I'm not bashing on China, but that are like plastic, not reusable, a bunch of like printed pamphlets that no one cares, like that they just end up in the trash. Welcome to Upon Arrival, a show that uncovers stories and strategies that make up all the moving parts of business events tourism with me, Adelaide Ng. We all agree that attending a great event is wonderful, and we love the freebies that we often get, or swag as we call it, which can be anything from pens, notebooks, or stress balls to tote bags, or even themed slippers for the beach. Too often though, by the time the event is over, delegates are left with things that they don't need or won't use. Sound familiar? Well, thankfully, we are getting better at some of these things since COVID's forced us to reduce points of contact. There's less printing of promotional materials, for example. But at the same time, we are using more disposable coffee cups and, of course, masks. But of course, sustainability is not just about our swag or throwaway coffee cups. It's a range of things from how we manage food service to designing experiences for delegates. Interestingly, I was getting requests from listeners to discuss this topic when I chanced upon meeting my guest for this episode. Alexandra Tomeko is described as a nomadic foodie and sustainability queen, currently based in Bali. She's been professionally event planning for 15 years and is starting an app that will match event planners with more sustainable venues. Stick around and you'll find out more. Welcome to the show, Alexandria. Thank you so much for having me. I have to ask you first, how did you go from growing up in Costa Rica, ending up in Indonesia, and I think there's some San Diego in between. You've been all over the place. How did you end up in Bali? I really have. I now subscribe. I'm just waiting for my citizenship of the world passport so I can just freely roam. <laughs> that would be ideal. How I ended up in Bali was around this time last year, a little bit earlier. I decided to travel. I was doing incentive trips out of San Diego and all of my clients were asking me about planning retreats and things in Bali. And so I wanted to be able to have that knowledge and the understanding and the lay of the land and the logistics that it takes to build a good experience in another country. So I was like, you know what? Right off vacation, let's go to Bali and see what it's about. I'll do a little bit of like yoga and diving and this kind of stuff. And then I'll come back and be ready and have all the information I need to plan abroad. And then the beautiful and terrible at the same time COVID hit. And so our whole industry, and if it's event planners listening, and then you also know, just went completely flat. And there was really nothing for me to go back to. And it was really hard because I had planned events for 15 years, which is most of my life. And now I just didn't know what to do. <laughs> like, what do you do here with yourself? That was what I lived and breathed for many years. So I decided to stay. I looked at expenses and lifestyle and like opportunities and everything else and ultimately made an informed decision to stay in Bali. And then as I had that time and that break to kind of rest, I started working on my now app, which we're about to launch. We're a month away from launching, which is all about that helping people plan when they're abroad. So giving them all of those resources and tours and venues and Everything that basically I did here in Bali, I just had and made into an app. <laughs> we'll talk more about that app a little bit later on, because I think there are certain things that you focus on, which makes it a little bit more 
unique. But many listeners to this podcast have a great interest in Bali. I'm not sure if you're aware, but Bali was Australia's top tourism destination before COVID hit. And Bali's been without tourists for a while now because of COVID. Is it still a ghost town? It really is. There was a border opening in December, which a lot of people were able to get in under. And so it filled up a little bit more. And then now they're really trying really hard, the Banjar, the local police, the government, especially of Bali, because Indonesia as a whole isn't suffering as much financially as Bali, because Bali's main income is tourism. So there are a few more people on the island, but definitely if you compare to years past around this time, it would have just been completely packed. And the stores have shut down. It's really sad. You know, I have a list of about 75 hotels that are up for sale and big hotels that have been around for years, like 20 years. And now they have to close their doors and sell because they haven't had tourists and they haven't been able to sustain the overhead and salaries and everything else in Bali. And how is the event industry coping. The events that I know of were all the ones that were coming in from overseas who were doing retreats in Bali. That is definitely struggling as well. And then there's two different types of event. Like even we see the cultural events are suffering, right? So there's this beautiful event, they call it, it's around Yepi time, which is silent day. And there's the Ogo Ogo festival where they make these like paper mache dolls, parade them down the street. And it's supposed to like bring out the evil spirits and then scare them away from the island. And it's this whole tradition. It like celebrates their new year. And that's been postponed for two years now. So even in a cultural way, they can't do their rituals because they've been banned because of gathering. And then on the other hand, with like expats and people who are coming in and doing retreats, there are a couple, but it's the ones that like the host is already here. And the people are already here. So it's more locally drawn in retreats versus people flying in. That's not as possible anymore. And there's still now I read something. Don't fully quote me on this because it changes all the time. But before it was a five-day quarantine, now I'm reading that they're trying to get it down to a two-day quarantine. And so you actually can't even fly directly into Bali. And so that's a huge factor because if you're going for a seven-day retreat and then have to spend five days in a hotel in Jakarta, that just doesn't, people can't make that in their schedule or financially, and it becomes a challenge. And so it's definitely set that industry back as well. Is there a pathway that's been laid out to a return? I mean, obviously with international borders, that's dependent on other countries to make a decision as to when they're ready. But for Bali, is there a pathway to a recovery to events? They've been working very arduously behind creating that path. I know that vaccines are now available in Bali. In villages, you can get vaccines. They're even giving expats vaccines all for free. So they're really doing their best to control and contain within Bali. But like you said, it also depends about borders. Some citizens aren't allowed to leave their country or the amount of citizens that are allowed to leave is reduced and they have to prove. And I think Australia is one of these countries. You have to prove that the reason for you exiting is of like force major, essentially, or a business, something important, not just like I'm going on holiday and I'm going on retreat. And so what happens is the few people that are able to or would like to get out for either business or something like that. There's not as many people on flights, and so flights are getting canceled as well. So there's also no means of transportation to transport these people into Bali so that they can have events and have respite and have vacation. So it sounds like the road ahead is still very long. It seems so. It has to be, I think, just like it was 
almost in a way a global shutdown. It has to be a global reopening where everybody gets on the same page. And so having the same policies, the same strict rules and guidelines so that everyone can understand and it can become easier to transit in between. I think most governments have seen that as a really tall order. So I think it'll be interesting to see how this works out. Obviously, being part of the industry, we were all hoping for something like that to happen sooner rather than later. But how did you get into the business tourism and events industry? I mean, you said that you've been doing this for 15 years, but how did you stumble into it? Or were you organizing events since you were five years old? What was the story? I know I do look very young for my age. So people are like, wait, when you were five? So I grew up, I attribute it to, I grew up in a household where we just loved to host events. And it didn't matter what the event was. Our purpose was to make it special and make, if it was a birthday, make that person feel special. If it was a wedding, if it was an anniversary, if it was Easter, Valentine's Day, anything. I wasn't dating at that time, but we always had Valentine's parties that we would go to. And my mom would make like this huge fuss about it. And the music and the food and the decor, all of it was themed around that. So I just grew up with this understanding and this sense of hospitality and what made a good party and an event and what actually was at the basis was like that sense of connection, like seeing friends and having a space where you can speak freely or dance freely or whatever it is that you want to do and celebrate. And so from that, I moved into working as assistant for a marketing director who specialized in fam trips, incentive trips in the industry. And she marketed a portfolio of hotels. So I helped to organize big DMCs, MICE, Kayak, Chibago, Booking.com, all of these people would come and we would give them a tour of that area so that they could sell it better. So that was kind of my first like official in the industry event planning. And then I went from there to be the director and coordinator of exchange groups. So that was also like a large event and logistics and everything behind, like picking up 20 students and making sure that they're delivered to the correct house and that their medical is on file and all these other items. And it was really interesting because it was so easy for me that it was almost, I had a moment in my career where I was like, maybe this isn't what I should be doing because it's so easy. And everybody says that you have to work so hard (laughs) and you have to sweat and hate your job. And I just love it. So I took a break. I went to wedding planning. I ended up just landing a job in wedding planning and saying it that way is exactly how it happened. I was literally taking a nap and someone called me, my previous boss, and was like, would you like to be the wedding planner of this like amazing boutique hotel? And I was like, eh, can you call me back when I'm done my nap? And she's like, I'm actually offering you a job. I'm like, yeah, but I'm napping. (laughs) Landed that job. (laughs) Did well to the point where I was planning about 44 weddings in one year. So it was amongst two years, but I was all planning them at the same time. And then I got burnt out with the industry. And so I took a step back, went on my own with one or two weddings. Didn't really want to do that. Did that two more years and then moved to California, restarted an event planning company, moved here and now have exited and started into tech. But I definitely will go back and like, Even if it's a workshop or like a birthday party or weddings, like even my friends, I at least plan five events a year, essentially, like between personal and friends being like, oh, I have a party. I just wanted you to check the timeline kind of thing. But really, they just want me to like, and they're like, no, I just want you to take it over. And I happily do. It makes me so happy. I planned uh, Thanksgiving for people here because a lot of them couldn't go home. And 
or that like just wasn't a feasible option at that moment financially or whatever. And so I wanted people to feel at home. And so I rented this giant villa and it was like, it was within COVID restrictions is that we'll say, but it was just this huge thing where people were like, I didn't know you could act like you said you were a good event planner, but I didn't know you could do this. This is just too much. This is like over the top. I'm like, yeah, that's what I like to do. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how I landed here. And that's a good fam trip, isn't it? It's always over the top. It's the unexpected. It's the wow factor. That's the world that we live in. Yeah. And it's like, what can I do to make it even better? And I've had people challenge me of like, oh, if you make it this good now, what are you going to do next year? I'm like, but that's the challenge. And that's the fun of it. Okay, this is what we did. Let's top that. And they're like, but do you have the ideas to do that? I'm like, of course I do. I could do an event about anything. I'm like, hangers, boom, 10 ideas. Let's do it. Anger event. Where do you get your inspiration for these ideas? Do you just go into the shower and it just pops into your head? Or are you into magazines and reading all the time or watching movies? Where are these challenge, constant challenge of doing better the next time? How do you do that? It's a really good question. I've never thought of like, where was my source? I think it's a mixture. A lot of it stems from being a very curious human being. And so that instigates a lot of different passions within like curious about like where does my food come from and then I like go into the deep hole of sustainability or ocean protection and then I like go down that rabbit hole and then I'm like oh my gosh this is amazing or did you know that this exists and so I could do this with this so that and then my other hidden weapon which isn't very hidden but I think all planners use is Pinterest (laughs) and I fought it off for so long because I was like, I know that if I like have a Pinterest, I'm just going to be on there for hours. And then I'm like, but it's for work. But then I'd be on there for hours. So I have just (laughs) random pins for everything. I have 5,000 something pins. And that's because (laughs) I put a timer on my phone. So I'm not allowed to pin as much as I used to pin. So that's a source where I just like will store them for random. Like I have a whole baking board of like when someone asks me for a cool cake, I just go through that. And being a wedding planner, you develop a second sense of just looking for inspiration, like everywhere and ideas and like, oh, this would be really cool too. And when you think about it, like yesterday I was showering and I was like, oh, this would be a really cool song for like an event like this. So I'm going to make a playlist for it now. And then whenever that event happens, I'll just have it ready. I'm not sure what pills you're taking, but I think I want some of those. 5,000 pins sounds like a lot. It is for one person. (laughs) That is amazing. It feels like you've been on this journey of entrepreneurship and I think you're in your 30s. Would that be correct? Yes, early 30s or 31. Okay, I guessed right. It's really embarrassing when you get it wrong. I suspect though that you've probably had more highs and lows than most people. Were there things that you started, the gaps that you saw in the market, what worked, what didn't work, and perhaps what you learned about yourself along the way? So highs and yos, definitely many. I see gaps in the market and then there's gaps to my zone of genius. And sometimes the gaps in the market are created because we have gaps that we're not acknowledging in our own zone of genius. Huge gaps in the market that I still see are software for event planning. I call myself an old school event planner because I've been around for 15 years planning events. And so I did everything analog. When I was planning 44 weddings, they each had a binder and it was each color coded and it was a lot of paper and a lot of printing, but everything was kept that way. And I had kind of Excel's and my own internal calendar, but there was no really way to organize and process it, to share it with multiple teams, Asana, Slack, all of that did not exist. I think it was like 
just towards my mid-career that like Google Drive became a thing and then you could share files and everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So I think those planning SaaS, so even though I use different tools such as Asana or Trello, there isn't one made specifically for event planners and the way that we think, the information that we have to retain, share, and process. So there's something similar in the industry. It's monday.com, but it still locks the Excel so you can't create your own formulas to get, because sometimes I need 20 pens, but only one venue and the price and everything is disproportionate. So that's a huge gap in the industry. Sourcing information is a huge gap in the industry. And still, like with any industry that has gaps, we find ways to mix match and stick things together and make it work with a bunch of duct tape. But we're still leaking a lot of whether it's time or funds through that. So sourcing information becomes very complex. And then you have to either find someone else and so like a DMC or a meeting planner to source that information from you. And then that makes the event costs go up higher, also more time on their side and everything else. Yeah, that's a lot of gaps. It's a lot of gaps. (laughs) 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 And gaps uh, that you saw in yourself, you're saying it's tech. Yeah, it was tech and really the structure. So I actually was a consultant for a while with restaurants and I would go in and I was operations and logistics consultant. So I would build systems and operations manuals for them. And so I'm great at creating them. But then I noticed that with planning, I need to have created systems that I can just plan because my zone of genius is that creative spurt of, oh, color, give me a theme or give me a word or give me a color and I'll make an event around it. But if I have to worry about billing and legal and marketing and sourcing and finding all of this other stuff, it's just a huge drain of energy. And then I can't do what I'm really good at. So that would be my personal gap. And I think a lot of planners might share that sentiment of they can, when all they have to do is plan, and I say plan, but we know that planning an event is a lot of other things under that. They're great. And they can take on like, a huge amount. So that's why I was able to plan 44 events at once because I had that system. I had the team. They were already trained. I just called them and wrote a list of who I wanted on my events and would hand it off and it was handled. So the ability to have a strong team and delegate is really crucial to an event planner. And you must be building your own new team now that you're in a new-ish location. With every business or personal development, things change, you grow, And the theme of sustainability has become a really strong one for you. Why is that something you've put at the forefront of your business? I mean, it's a huge trend and a fast growing priority for many in the industry. But what were your turning points that made you decide this is what you wanted to champion in the industry? I think what it was is it's always been a core belief and a core value of mine as a person. And growing up in Costa Rica, like I did for 18 years and actually studying hospitality and tourism within Costa Rica, we were really taught of the sustainable ways to move forward in the tourism industry. And Costa Rica is one of the world's top in sustainability and conservation. It's about 23% of its land and oceans are protected. And so it's just what we do. It's normal. It's part of our day-to-day. We just assume that's how the world operates. So it was actually when I moved to California and I would talk to people and I'd be like, yeah, but the sustainability of this or the eco of this and this, and they would just be mind blown. How do we not know this? I'm like, wait, you don't know that? And then to be like, yeah, no, nobody knows this. (laughs) No one's taught this. And I'm like, that was like part of my curriculum in school. In Costa Rica, they have governing authorities that focus on sustainability and sustainable tourism. 
So I think that's when I became more vocal about it. It wasn't that it was a trend or I discovered it. If not, I discovered that there was a lack of education around it. And so I took it upon myself to educate where I could and put it more on the forefront so it could have more light because it's something that we all need to be talking about. Yeah, I think we all know the benefits of conferencing, the networking and investment that can result, the job creation, the legacy creation. But conferencing does produce a lot of landfill. I did read that a four-day national trade show can produce something like 850 kilos in emissions per participant, and that's equivalent to burning two barrels of oil, which is quite a staggering thought. It really is. And as an event planner, and that's why it's really the cornerstone of this new company I'm creating is because as event planners, like you're saying, we're in charge of so much more waste. It's not just my own personal waste. I'm the one who's vetting, approving, asking these questions, and ultimately putting the waste in people's hands. And so we have to really ask those questions of our venues, of our suppliers, of our vendors, of our partners. What is sustainability to you? How are you being sustainable? And not just trusting, there's a lot of great organizations and nonprofits, but really finding, I say, what is important to you on a sustainability level? Because there's four different prongs. Choosing one that's really important and sticking to that one. And then include the others because it's actually like not sustainable to try to be 100% sustainable in everything you do. You're just going to drive yourself mad. So it's better for you to find the things that really resonate with you at your core and say, okay, this is going to be implemented throughout. And then it have that long lasting effect. You talked about four prongs. What are the four? So we see it as cultural, social, environmental, and economical. And so all of them at the basis boil down to ecological sustainability. But because all of our resources are taken from Earth, everything, financial resources, social, all of those are taken from Earth. So it all boils down to that, but there are four different ways of seeing it. And so if we're talking about social, we're talking about social good programs, education programs, health programs. Does your company provide 401k? Does your company provide health care? All these kind of questions. Environmental can be, it's the largest, I would say, of the prongs. And so that's, do you fish locally? Do you farm locally? Do you recycle? Do you compost? Do you use green energies? Things like that. Cultural is more the protection and conservation of cultural rites, traditions, and rituals, right? So like in Bali, we see that a lot. We see a lot of ceremonies and rituals and dances and things that they do to keep their culture alive. And then financial, for example, a venue owner lives on site. That's probably the most financially sustainable way, right? Because they're taking money from that site and they're making money off of it, but then they're feeding it back into the local community because they're probably shopping local and traveling local, paying bills locally. And so they're not just depleting that area of financial resources. Interesting. How do you think we as an events industry are doing with sustainability. It gets good enough coverage in our trade magazines as a topic, but if you had to issue a report card on how we, the event industry, are doing with sustainable goals, how would you rate the industry and where do you see are the biggest issues? These are big questions. So I know we're on a podcast, but I'm making a lot of facial expressions just so the listeners (laughs) know because it's such a hard thing to like quantify. And I think it really depends on the lens that you're looking at sustainability through. 
And I think that really can modify the rating that you're giving. So if I'm looking at sustainability through the lens of morality, it's going to be terrible. If I'm looking through the sense of specifically ecology, it's going to be different. So I think there's still a long way to go as we return to events, I think. And I really hope that sustainability will be part of paving that new path back to events. And if we do that, we're looking good. But currently, it's really, really hard for something to be 100% sustainable. And it's just the reality of the fact. So we need to do better because larger events are the bigger contaminators. And yet there's not a lot of venues that are like built sustainably, that are using clean energy, that are reducing CO2 emissions, that are doing all these things to where you can say, okay, it's fine that we gathered 2,000 people. But then there's other things that you can do to mitigate that. Are you disposing of food waste and trash appropriately to compensate with that. There's a lot of certifiers in our field, outside of our field, like for buildings, for electric, for everything else. But really, some of them are nonprofits that I'm not going to say ulterior motives because I don't want to get like a bunch of phone calls of what are you talking about? But that might define sustainability different or because they're looking at it through a certain lens, they see sustainability as different. I like love the weight of kind of financial sustainability because so many times we only think about eco. We only think about the earth, which yes, it is our main source of everything, everything. But there's a huge component to financial sustainability. So if you're flying in and I own this giant conference and I have it overseas and then I fly back with all that money and everybody else just fly, we're just taking from that area. And really sustainability is not depleting a source of its resources. So allowing it to regenerate. So if you look at it that way, am I allowing this area where I just brought 2,120 people to, is it able to regenerate after we leave? Really interesting thoughts. Now, I do have a listener, Anna, in Canada, who would like to know what parts of event design can be made sustainable. And she also wondered if the days of shared milk jugs and coffee pots are gone. That's a really good question. So event design, since we're seeing a lot of virtual events, so if we're talking about event design as in decor and because like if you're looking at it as a whole as like graphically, like colors and that kind of stuff, it's essentially sustainable. But if we're looking at the things that we're using, the decor, the, the things that we're throwing away, there's way to manage that waste. So making sure that it's either responsibly sourced, sustainably sourced, if you can, and then managing that waste. So for example, if you're doing weddings, I've seen something that I love that people do. It's like taking those flowers that you're just going to throw out and putting them in an old folks home. So it's like you're managing that waste in a bit and you're mitigating it a little bit. And even though they're still going to die, they have double use, like you're recycling that. And then with shared milk jugs and coffee pots and all of that, there's still the option of through swag. And that's a big one. Don't do cheap swag. (laughs) Like we need to stop doing this as event planners. We have a say, (laughs) but I'm serious because we get a lot of stuff from China and I'm not bashing on China, but that are like plastic, not reusable, a bunch of like printed pamphlets that no one cares, like that they just end up in the trash. So why not do a QR code that people, if they're really interested, they can scan and you're saving hundreds and thousands of pieces of paper. And instead of buying a cheap plastic pen that will break, either don't give a pen and have people bring their own pen or give a nicer pen that's going to cost you a little bit more, but it's going to be the longevity of it will be longer. So within that, you can give 
clean canteen water bottles. You can give coffee mugs and say, hey, look, at the beginning of the conference, we gave you in your swag bag a coffee mug. You are responsible for bringing your own coffee, like coffee mug, and then there's washing stations where you can wash it and you can reuse it. And so it's not these paper cups that we're seeing. If Sometimes there's venues that will do that and will swap out beverage stuff and then cutlery and things like that for you to use. But if that's not available, instead of going for plastic or even recycled, if you could factor that in into your budget of, oh my gosh, it's a conference of five days and I have to buy like all of these plastic or disposable cups, even though they're compostable, why don't I just buy each user a reusable travel mug? And that would actually cut down the amount of waste. So there's ways. And again, it's like what resonates with you on that level and then finding things to do that. And also like with the swag stuff, it could be buying local swag, right? Like that financial sustainability piece, find local swag, a local designer that maybe made a candle versus other things that they like magnets or something. I don't know. Some do worry though that with COVID, sustainability has taken a bit of a backseat. There's more use of single-use plastics now because of the hygiene concerns. Any thoughts on that? And do you see that as just a temporary problem? I think the problem is not COVID. I think the problem is our decisions and our culture, the way that it's in our culture. So before everybody was like on a rampage about straws and then water bottles, and now everybody's on the rampage of masks ending up in the ocean. But if you look at it, like at its core, it's humans making decisions to buy things that are single use, to buy things that are disposable, and then to not properly dispose of them. So it has taken a backseat, but I think if you're creative enough and you're dedicated enough, you can find solutions of avoiding single use. If we're talking bringing that swag conversation back, that would be a great swag item, like a cloth mask, and you just throw it in the washing machine, you throw it in the dryer, you hang it out. I have my tailor make me cloth masks, and I've had two, and they've lasted me a year. Now I have a new one because I just want it to like match things. But (laughs) if you think of the amount of times I leave or that I have to wear a mask, even to go like on a run, I have to wear a mask. And the amount of single use masks that I would have used versus that cloth mask, it way outweighs the benefits of not only cost, but effectivity. And then also my contamination that I'm not adding to. Do you worry at all that sustainability, although there's a lot more work in terms of changing attitudes and behavior at the same time, because it's become a bit of a trendy topic. Do you feel like sometimes it can be quite tokenistic, a box to tick off to make people feel like they're doing the right thing? Have you seen much evidence of it being used as a token gesture? And if so, how do you address that? A hundred percent it is. Sustainability, just like eco is being greenwashed is what we call it in the industry. It does concern me a lot because people think that they're doing well or buying sustainable or organic or eco products when they don't see the manufacturing that goes behind. So I think it also goes back to two things really. And it's the responsibility of the consumer to ask the right questions. And then the responsibility of the provider and the manufacturer to actually have the integrity to say. So I think there's still a lot of greed, let's call it, that affects the transparency in this. And so, of course, there are a lot of people who are voting with, as consumers, voting with their dollars, but you still have to ask the right questions because like, I'm willing to spend so much more money on something if it's sustainable. 
but I go through the personal process of verifying, okay, first of all, what is sustainability for me? And then how asking the right questions to see if it verifies sustainable in my book. One of our core beliefs in two companies that I have is sustainability over profit. (laughs) And my board doesn't like it, but it's true because I'm like, the moment that we start looking at profit (laughs) over sustainability, we're in trouble. And right now my core team is very small, but I'm hoping, and I see a future of it being a larger company. And so I knew I needed to write that in like the corporate bylaws, in our core beliefs, in our brand book, it's everywhere. So that later down the line, when we have 20 or 40 people working for us, I don't have to consistently call people and remind them sustainability over profit. They just know that that's like the filter through which we operate. You haven't been in this business for a short time. So I think the importance of profitability as well as sustainability, and tell me if I'm wrong, but there is a belief that sustainability is good business in the long run. It definitely is because ultimately it ensures that we can keep on doing what we love doing, which is not only continuing to have events and see each other and travel and have this connection, but also like living and breathing at the rate that we're going with the destruction that we've had on this earth. We're really looking to exhausting our food resources, our oxygen resources, our prime material resources. And so we're really getting to the point where We're no longer to have clear air to breathe, food to eat. Oh yeah, we'll have a wealth, but you can't eat money. You can't breathe money. So it's time for us to call that back into balance because in the long run, do we want to continue to do this? Yes. And I think, and something that it's important to highlight about sustainability is about thriving, right? It's not about depriving. It's about thriving. So it's about all systems and beings thriving. So that means the animal kingdom the human kingdom, the nature, all of it thriving together. So making sure that we're not hurting each other to the point where nature can no longer thrive, humans can no longer thrive, and animals can no longer thrive. So it's bringing back that like eco versus ego. We're not at the top of the food chain. Like we consider ourselves to be, but really it's there's this whole chain and beautiful synergy that happens between plants and animals and humans that we have to maintain. And so if we continue to inject ourselves and deplete the way that we're depleting resources, then there is no long run is really how I see it. Important point. What have you seen in innovation and sustainability that's exciting you? Being in Bali, we live in a bubble and to be perfectly transparent, Bali is not a very sustainable region. Indonesia is not a very sustainable country. It's not really high up on their radar or a priority. So it was interesting for me to see electric scooters because everyone rides scooters here, but they're all like gas or diesel. And so electric scooters started to come into the market. And so that was a cute like addition that I was like, oh, this is really fun. And this is, it's fun while hitting a core item that I know I need to check off because yeah, it was like electric cars was a big thing. I have an electric car in the States within the industry. I think it's not a thing. It's awareness. There's a shift in the cultural dialogue, bringing more awareness towards sustainability. We're seeing more documentaries showing the raw part of commercial fishing. We're seeing documentaries showing what's happening with coral bleaching. We're seeing documentaries showing about logging and deforestation, about social injustice, about financial injustice. So I think we're shifting 
culturally and socially towards bringing awareness to this and really activating people to take action. And I think that's really what we need. So I think that would be the biggest thing that I've started to hear sustainability being talked about, even though it's still being greenwashed and some people are using it for financial benefit. I think there's still conversations because of that, that are happening at dinner tables or meetings that are important. I thought I'd also ask, because you're also in the incentive trips space, do you believe that this will be the last sector in the industry to recover? And will it look different when it does? Because so many companies have had to slash budgets during the pandemic. Yes and no. (laughs) There's two sides because yes, because travel is going to be a lot harder. Travel is a lot more complicated and more expensive. Flights are cheaper, but then if you have to quarantine or get a special visa or something like that. So if it's local incentive travel, I think it will come back, especially because the beauty of incentive travel in the industry is that it has provable ROI. So conferences have provable ROI, but incentives. So when it's the company themselves and you sit down and you look at the books, it does have, if you're able to track it and ask the right questions and collect the correct data to support it, it has provable ROI. So I think it will be part of bringing the industry back together and also helping other industries recover, especially if you're still a consumer, you're still consuming things, but then the product that you consume is like, hey, I'd like to take you on a trip. I know you've been like house quarantined for a while. I'd be like, yes, and you will forever buy my loyalty. And so then that's dollars right there. So (laughs) I think it won't be long behind. So if it's locally incentive events, yes, it has a lot more potential to come back up and a lot faster. And I think even because those companies that still have money and are still going, because there's still quite large companies that are still making profits and doing things like we're comparing an industry that's it's in a coma (laughs) like it flatlined a little bit and now it's in a coma and so we're slowly bringing it back so in comparison to other events in the industry not as much but there are still a lot of companies making quite a bit of money and profit that can still support and write off incentive trips to be a collaborator and a priority. I think it'll be really interesting to watch that space because if you lived in a country that was large and had lots of possibilities to explore like Australia, that might work for a while. But if you're in a tiny place like Singapore, where if you don't, if you're restricted to your own country and it's just local trips, it doesn't take long before you're really frustrated at running out of, of options. I just wonder what the smaller countries are, are going to do in the incentive trip space. I think that will be determined by the planner's creativity because you can take a space that even though it's like on a dock in the marina outside of Singapore, somewhere where you like usually would be like, ugh, part of our job as an event planner and our description is to like create an experience that's once in a lifetime experience, especially with incentives when you have the money behind it. So you can bring in things and make it really special and innovative. And especially with all this technology we have in events. So I think that if we're creative enough, we won't be bored. And then there's that huge factor of most people have been locked in their homes. And some people are very lucky to have homes with like beautiful big gardens and yards and pools. And some it's just concrete and very small, especially Singapore, uh, certain places of Europe, like cities. So if you're like, I'm just going to take you to a place where you have a golf course to look out, I think a lot of people would hop on board, even though it's a small country. 
I think you've set as the the challenge. It, it that's the bar, and I think those are fantastic ideas. Now I know that you have this app which you're about to launch. I know you're connecting suppliers and venues, for example, with a twist. There's a bit of a different focus to it. Tell us more about it. Yes, the app is a marketplace to bridge that gap between hotel venues, because we focus primarily on venues that have sleeping rooms, and group event planners. And we do that based on the differences in the industry is our prime priority is sustainability. So we give each hotel a sustainability rating based on our internal rating system, I guess it is our rating system. And so we're in the process of we're going to publish that later and like questions, but basically it's a series of about 50 questions that we ask them about cultural, social, financial, and environmental sustainability, as well as food and venue sustainability. So meaning like how was the structure built? Were certain things considered? Were sustainable or repurposed materials used? That kind of stuff. And food sustainability is food sourcing, food waste management, all of this kind of stuff. So that's really our like our main priority. And so we not only rank them and offer on the profile a ranking, a percentage ranking, but also we sort them by sustainability. And our hope is twofold of not only to help educate, make it easier for an event planner to find a sustainable venue educate people about sustainability, and then also bring into awareness to those venues. If you did get a 15%, maybe you need to be looking at that. And what changes can you make in your policies or in your infrastructure to actually move towards a more sustainable future and outcome? And so we really pull all the information that event planners take four weeks, six weeks, sometimes two months to gather because of lack of responsivity from the hotels or just not knowing what's available and having to sit there and research the area for a really long time. So it makes it a lot easier, saves a lot more time. And then it's the most in-depth directory that is on the market actually available because since as an event planner, I created all of the questions. So it actually takes the hotel about an hour to fill out between food and beverage minimums, logistics, things like that. Small details that are not on other sites because they're not needed in a B2C market, but they're needed and they're really important in the B2B market. And is that a global app or are you restricting it to particular regions? It is a global app and that is our scaling trajectory. Right now we are launching with two regions. It's called Little Black Book Series. And so each book is like an edition of that book, essentially. So each country or region is an edition of this. So we're launching with Costa Rica and Bali, and then we are focusing on onboarding two more regions or editions by the end of the year. So right now we're focusing on the tourism hotspots. There is a little bit of influence of the easier to get to tourism hotspots. And really the ones that not just one person or group travel, destination travel, DMC incentives, conferences, because really that's our market is B2B and moving those large numbers of people. And so if we can help people do that more efficiently, more effectively, and also more sustainably, we've accomplished all of our goals. So beyond Bali and Costa Rica, what else are you eyeing? So we have four. Thailand and Vietnam, since I am still in Asia, and then Colombia, Belize, and Mexico in America. So we will choose two out of those five, essentially, to onboard by the end of the year. 
Now, what books or resources are you reading or that you would recommend for people who are in events and also interested in sustainability? So I have to be honest, I'm not really a reader. <laughs> I can say like resources, like I love documentaries, sustainability documentaries. So well, the one thing I'll say about documentaries is follow the money. So there's a couple of documentaries and documentaries usually tend to be one-sided, right? Because they're under the lens of whoever is filming that. So if it is a raging anarchist, it's going to be filmed from like, anarchy is a good thing. We should all be anarchists. If it's filmed from a carnivore's perspective, it's going to support eating meat. If it's filmed from a vegan's perspective, it's going to be the same. Just making sure that you're not taking it all as 100% truth and just doing research afterwards. So two documentaries that I just watched. One I loved, it was like so incredible. I also recently got into diving and so it was really amazing. The shots that they took was Chasing Coral and it talks all about coral bleaching. It came out in 2013, but now it's available on Netflix. That was a really good one. And then I just from there, most of these documentaries actually have a website which they cite their sources. And so you can go down that rabbit hole that way and read some things. And they have other books and experts that they interview that you can follow. The other documentary that I actually watched last night was Seaspiracy. Jury is still out on it. A lot of it is actually true, but it was still also from the lens of the director is what I'll say. So there's still things that I know to be true in sustainability, which were not highlighted. And so at the end, you're pushed to this decision. That's the only thing that's going to change and help this situation. And that's not always true. And there actually, I just posted on my website and I can actually send it to you if you want a list of like the top 10 documentaries that right now we're recommending. And then there are a couple of book resources there as well. You named a number of apps in this conversation, but I'm just wondering what is your go-to app that you use just to plan everything together, just to piece all the different parts? So the apps that I use in planning are G Suite, so Google Drive, Excels, Word documents. I use Asana varying on the size of the event and then who is my team and then some Slack. And then for my own company, basically the platform in which I'm building my own app, I check that every day. Asana, Slack, and WhatsApp just to communicate with my board through messages. Well, lots of people are going to be interested in your app and they could be listening to this interview months after it's been published. So by then your app will be available. How do people look for it? So it's called Little Black Book Series. And then the website, the URL is Black Book Series. We have a page on LinkedIn, we have a page on Facebook, we have an Instagram, and we have a Pinterest. So starting at the end of April 2021, it should be available with two editions, and then we'll slowly be building and hopefully scaling. So I would be excited if someone's like listening to this in the future and then, wow, you have 10. Yes, that's us. And Alexandria, how do people connect with you if they wanted to? I will share my LinkedIn link, that would probably be the most effective. I check my LinkedIn consistently. I'd say that one or through the website. I'm still, since we're still scaling, if you just put attention Alexandria on any of the contact forms, I will at some point get it for sure and respond. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> 
brilliant. I don't know if I can call you Alex for short, but thank you so much for giving us your ideas and just sharing your stories and where you see things going with sustainability and also for this wonderful app that you are creating. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the conversation, it would mean so much if you'd spare a moment to subscribe, rate and review the show. And let me know if you have any questions so I can look for the right guests to address them next time. Join me again next week and we'll uncover more stories and strategies for a successful future.